Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're talking the market for carbon. How is carbon traded? What are the trends? And is carbon going to be one of the most important commodities and asset classes of the future? Our guest is Ariel Perez. Ariel is a partner at Hartree Partners and has been forefront of the carbon markets for over a decade. Hartree Partners themselves are heavily active in the compliance markets, the voluntary markets. They have a joint venture called Vertree with Partners Systemic, providing access to carbon products and projects, as well as they've announced one of the largest single investments in voluntary carbon credits in conjunction with Wildlife Works. Ariel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion as, as kind of a, a continuation of a previous episode that we did with John Goldberg on kind of the broader carbon decarbonization space. Today, we're really going to zoom in on the, the market for carbon, which is increasingly prevalent in both boardrooms as well as society and how, it, you know, and how we can actually give this externality a price. We're going to move into carbon as an asset class, traded carbon markets. Before we get there, I think we need to sort of all get on the same page as to to what the the concept of pricing carbon is. Can you just give us a little overview on kind of why this idea of pricing carbon has come about and frame up for us why some methods are essentially a tax and some methods are going down cap and trade type schemes? Sure. The essence of carbon pricing is this idea of trying to put a price on things that are currently unpriced. Uh, in economics, we call them externalities. And the idea really came about a long time ago in the United States when they had a problem with acid rain. And in essence, it was free to pollute and without a price signal, then the market and market participants, predominantly power companies, really didn't have a, a legislation or a law or an executive order to stop. So the concept was they would put a artificial limit on how much pollution can go into the environment. They would then allow counterparties to trade with each other. And the concept is that the market will find the lowest possible price uh, to stay underneath that cap. Now, I would say that carbon is probably the most prevalent commodity in the world. The majority of carbon even today remains unpriced. And that's in essence, there's really two ways that regulators and governments can put a price on carbon. They could either fix the price which is called the carbon tax. Uh, so it's good because polluters know exactly what the price is. Uh, they might even have some certainty as to how that price will change. But what's bad about it or the, the negative is that the volume is not fixed. So even though you know the price, uh, you don't actually know how much people will pollute. And it's extremely complicated to try to work that out. You have different elasticities in demand. And then there are some markets in which it's an extremely competitive market with very low margins. And there are other markets where you have almost monopolies that would guarantee that they pass those costs on. Whereas I think in a carbon market, a cap and trade system, where the volume of carbon that can be emitted is fixed and is almost always declining, the price is, of course, variable. Now, the benefit of that, obviously, in a, in, in a world where you have a fixed carbon budget and we're burning through it in, in a record amount of time, is that you are guaranteed an, a level of emission reductions over a given period of time and the price is allowed to fluctuate to find the right price, not just kind of today, um, but over time, because it being a commodity market, you know, there are futures and derivatives and other financial instruments that allow 
polluters and market participants to trade carbon between each other over long periods of time. Yeah, you get that guaranteed reduction and you allow the price to become the signal for economic actors to, to change or whatever they need to be doing, as opposed to that. I'm always reminded by the analogy of uh, the daycare that decides to start fining parents for picking up their kids late attacks and they suddenly found that everyone dropped picking up their kids late because suddenly you're just paying for it right so <laughs> exactly what is the prevalence of cap and trade schemes to straight taxes yeah it's a good question let's say that the the growing trend the trend as of late has been a price in carbon in regions where there wasn't previously a price and not and in the regions where there is a price on carbon is extending the reach of those trading regimes to other sectors. So we think just about 20% of global emissions today is priced. The Chinese have just launched an emission trading system uh, within the last month, which takes us to just under 25%. But the majority of carbon pricing regimes around the world are cap and trade systems as opposed to carbon taxes. Right. So we're going to primarily focus on cap and trade systems. Within these carbon markets, you've got ultimately two buckets. You've got the compliance market and you've got the voluntary market. Can you just set up for us the distinction between those two and, and some of the commonalities in terms of the tools and, and systems that they use to try and cap and then ultimately decrease carbon um, emissions? So in cap and trade, you know, in cap and trade systems, I would say the key distinction is that there is a, there is a fixed limit on supply. And it goes down over time. And obviously, the government or the regulators have effectively a monopoly on issuing that supply. And that supply enters the market either through auctions or through allocations, which are you know, given away to energy-intensive industries usually. And they're basically handed out free of charge. Both of those buckets within compliance systems decrease over time. They typically decrease in a linear fashion. In the EU, we call it the linear reduction factor. And then kind of every so often, there will be usually an increase in the ambition, uh, which will change the slope of the linear reduction factor. Or, you know, in the case of the European Union, they might intervene and remove excess inventory from the market, which they do through reducing the supply. So roughly a quarter of the world's emissions are covered under cap and trade systems. They range from covering anywhere between 20 and 80% of the economy. If you're part of a cap and trade system and you emit over a certain amount, typically it's somewhere in the region of 20 to 25,000 tons, you have to participate. Uh, so every year, at the end of the year, you have to do an audit. Uh, you submit what your emissions were for the prior year. Uh, and then typically within a month, you have to then surrender an equal amount of carbon permits to meet prior year obligation. Now, in some systems, you have a cost containment mechanism. Which, is essentially, which essentially allows emitters to use offsets to meet part of that obligation. Uh, in the European Union, uh, they allowed for the importation of about 1.6 billion tons uh, in markets such as in California. They put a limit of about 8% and it decreases over time. It's now, I believe, 4% every year. Emitters can import carbon offsets. Now, a carbon offset is fundamentally different to a carbon permit. So the voluntary market, which you know, is the instrument that people trade and the commodity that is created, you know, is linked to a specific project. That project typically has to happen outside of a compliance system, or probably the first test for a carbon uh, for a carbon offset to be real and to be issued is that it needs to be additional. So, if you want to think of it as almost like a like a carrot and a stick regime, the stick is the carbon market, which 
puts a price on carbon. And if you pollute a lot of CO2, then obviously you're going to have a big obligation, which should increase over time as the supply goes down. And then what we think is is frankly going to be a much bigger market than all of the world's compliant carbon markets uh, is the voluntary, you know, the voluntary offset trading system. Mm. And then there is a, a meshing between those two, right? So essentially, you, these compliance markets are also recognizing the commodity and the voluntary markets, right? The projects as well. There is that interlinkage. What it does recognize is, are offsets, certain type of offsets. And within the offset market, you have compliance offsets, which are frankly, voluntary offsets that you can use for compliance purposes in certain markets. Uh, And anything that is not a compliance offset, but is an offset is by definition a voluntary offset. Got it. Right. Okay. We're going to come on to the voluntary markets, which as you say, is kind of where you see that there's a huge opportunity. Just staying on compliance markets, I said the biggest scheme is the EU's, you've got then California's, you've got the, the recent announcements on, by the Chinese government, and you've got, kind of got this prevalence of 20 to 25%. This fundamental concept behind it all is this engineering scarcity, yep. which you note in your notes and our discussions prior to this <laughs> hasn't quite happened yet. But can you dig into that for us and, and what that concept and the goal was? So the whole concept around a cap and trade system is that market participants and polluters have a very long-term signal in terms of what the decrease in the cap is going to is going to result in terms of supply of carbon permits in the market. Now, in order to pollute, you need to buy and then surrender a carbon permit to the regulator. So over time, as the cap goes down and the supply of permits in the system is decreasing, by definition, you're going to require a decrease in emissions to stay below that cap. Now, how do you actually force people to reduce emissions when you can't actually mandate or regulate them to? The most efficient way, in our, from our perspective, to do that is by increasing the price of polluting. So the natural order of things is the lower the supply of carbon, given stable or slightly decreasing demand, which is what we've seen in the developed world, the price has to go up. And as regulators and politicians want to increase the ambition you know, from a decarbonization perspective, it's going to lead to a faster decrease of carbon permits entering the system every year. And the amount of inventory that's actually held by market participants kind of, you know, in a, if you look at it kind of in a cumulative basis, because every carbon permit that is ever issued or sold and is not actually burned through and surrendered to the government exists kind of in perpetuity as inventory. Um, so there's kind of, you want to think about it as a kind of a flow of carbon, which is coming into the system every year. That essentially gets eliminated by how much is polluted, which is the demand side. Whatever is left is inventory. And at the moment, we have a decreasing inventory in virtually every carbon market in the world. And the flow of carbon that is entering the market that is basically what is available to pollute on an annual basis uh, is also now being cut really by a record rate as more and more jurisdictions around the world are pledging net zero. You mentioned there, though, that demand has been stable or just slightly declining. So are these schemes actually working? Are we seeing carbon reductions as a result of them? I think unequivocally we are. An argument that we saw take hold for a very long time is that you couldn't have economic growth while slashing emissions. And I think you know certain jurisdictions like, like in the United Kingdom and California have actually proven that to, to not be the case. Uh, and actually, I would argue that if you look in a place like uh, the UK, where they've kind of voluntarily put an additional burden on 
power generators from a carbon perspective, you know, they had the biggest decreases of any Europe of any country in the European emissions trading scheme over the last 10 years. And they've managed to completely decouple the size of their economy from the rate of emission reductions. So I think carbon pricing demonstrably has worked, but I think, you know, we're really going to start seeing the effects now because these systems are, they're in their relative infancy when you think of in the context of other kind of global commodity markets. I'm allowed a few stupid questions in this conversation. To, of to course. Through. <laughs> Is anyone allowed to hold inventory for these unburned through carbon allowances, permits, or do you have to, there's certain, you know, could I go and buy some of this inventory, outstanding inventory? Yeah. So you need to have a, you need to have a registry account and different, different systems have different rules, but even if you could not directly own any of the inventory, most systems you would be able to access what is effectively inventory either through a ETF or a futures contract, because our view is every kind of futures contract is actually backed by a physical ton somewhere in a registry, if that makes sense. But the yeah. market is meant to be an open market, open for trading, basically. Yeah, which will come on, I think, the culmination of this discussion is carbon as an asset class and why it might be quite a, a good thing for the world and good thing for people's pocketbooks to, uh, to invest in. But one of the issues over the last decade, and, and you've been an emissions trader for that period, was there's, you know, you've also, you're living in a dynamic world of, of politics and policy, and you've got to have the political will there to, to continue to reduce the allowance numbers and or at least set them at a level where they're meaningful. And I guess the early part of the, this decade, we had the global financial crisis and so forth. And that really kind of created a sort of stuttering start to the, at least the European trading scheme, emissions trading scheme. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. What I think is different about you know, the market today is being 10 years on, we're witnessing the effects of climate change. So I think public perception has changed. I think the, the success of the large emission trading regimes that have been put in place in, you know, in Europe and North America uh, has made other places around the world kind of take note and frankly, look at the carbon market as a pretty valuable source of potential revenues, which could then go towards funding decarbonization, research and development into carbon removal technologies and uh, subsidizing energy intensive industries and you know, people living in energy poverty. And I think also part of the reason why you know, we're seeing such a kind of a renaissance now in terms of ambition and, you know, in, in these markets is, is as a result of the pandemic, uh, which I think has brought the global community closer together and has made people kind of rethink <laughs> what a one and a half, two or, you know, potentially higher degrees of, of, of warming future would look like. And as we're recording this right now, you know, it's it, uh, with wildfires across Europe, North America and, and elsewhere in the world, it's... Um... It's obviously quite an immediate, as you say, it's very much in the public mind at the moment. And the the pressure has really been applied to politicians, at least in the developed world, to tackle it. Yeah, it's, um, it is particularly for, you know, the younger generation. This is, this is just about the biggest topic that, that, is, that is front of mind. So I think politicians are taking note. Uh, I think global companies are obviously taking note. Uh, and I think once you start doing a little bit of um, of digging and uh, research into the market, I think you'll people will find that by and large, using carbon trading and putting a price on CO two and you know utilizing the infrastructure that's been been developing over the last kind of fifteen or twenty years is you know it's a it's a pretty efficient way to attack this problem at a global level. 
Yeah, yeah, and we're certainly seeing the people demand. Just staying on compliance markets for a moment more. Sure. What are the future trends? Do we expect actually that we're going to see that that prevalence grow from the twenty five percent to to where and and is China's scheme similar to Europe's? Or, you know, and where where are we, where are we heading with compliance markets? That's a good question. I think that carbon. I think that compliance markets are going to grow, kind of in two dimensions. I think that the markets that are that that currently exist are going to cover an increasingly large share of the economy. Uh, so in Europe, roughly forty five percent of the economy is covered by the emissions trading system. There's obviously an effort to expand that to shipping, to aviation, transport, buildings. So I think we're going to see carbon markets expand in terms of the breadth of the economy, you know, how, how much of the economy they cover in existing kind of legislations. And I think you're going to see more and more countries start pricing carbon, frankly, as a result of the, the European Union's carbon border adjustment. And I think also just you know, as a way to raise revenues and, and, and really give polluters as much flexibility as possible to get on a path towards net zero with kind of a minimum amount of, of intervention. Because of course, the other problem with carbon taxes, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, they don't actually limit pollution, is that you kind of almost will never have the right price. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a bit more detail down the road. But I think the right price of carbon is extremely subjective, and it's very volatile. So varies by region, varies by geographic sector, uh, varies by time. So getting the right carbon price and legislating that price and having it having it kind of set in stone for even a year or you know six months, you're almost certainly going to have the wrong price <laughs> at most of the time, frankly. Yeah, one of the things about carbon when you put it into the ESG mix is it's the most measurable, right? It's much easier to measure yeah. measure carbon emitted than it is to try and do it the other way around and guess a price first, right? Yeah, that's right. So, okay, so voluntary markets, and this is where the picture gets a little bit more complex in you know and, and varied so can you we, you've touched on voluntary markets this sort of this offset driven they sit outside of compliance markets um, there is some tie up where there are compliance offsets and so forth but can you can you just give us an idea of how that the the, the base commodity of the the voluntary market and and roughly how it works and then we can dig into some of the the challenges and opportunities so what I would say the the main difference between voluntary and compliance markets is is kind of in you know it's it's in the word it's it, it's done on a completely voluntary basis, and as I said before you know there are some offset projects and activities that qualify to effectively substitute different compliance obligations in different projects you know in different kind of uh, trading regimes around the world, but it really is set up as an incentive for people to take. For people to take steps that have to be, by definition, additional to what they would otherwise do under some kind of business as usual, you know, some kind of business as usual baseline. And it really is meant to act as a, if you want to think of it as a floating subsidy to compensate people for reducing or removing CO2. Now, in order for an individual or a company to generate a voluntary carbon offset, uh, they need to register their activities under an established methodology. One of the largest collection, you know, one of the largest kind of um, agencies in the world that issues carbon offsets is called Vera. Uh, there are others called the Gold Standard. They're all essentially, you know, successors to the uh, Clean Development Mechanism, which, which is essentially created out of the Kyoto Protocol. 
And what's different about voluntary offsets versus compliance is that they can come from hundreds of different types of activities. So in the power sector, uh, you have agricultural offsets, forestry offsets, uh, different type of industrial processes, energy efficiency. It's essentially anything where you can demonstrate that your action and your activity has reduced or reduced or removed carbon relative to the baseline. And in exchange for registering you know, your activity and monitoring you know, the results and requesting issuance, uh, you can get a tradable instrument, which is a carbon offset. And that carbon offset is traded in an open market. There are exchanges that clear offsets. Most of the trading is done over the counter. But it is essentially the way that you know, the market compensates uh, market actors for making voluntary investments, taking risk, deploying capital to reduce or remove CO2. And those projects are, in some cases, used for compliance markets when they, when, they, when they are no longer able to be used. In compliance markets, they then enter the voluntary market. Um, and the voluntary market has traditionally been a big area of focus uh, for corporates that are making kind of you know, CSR contributions. It's been a massive recipient of donor uh, financing and donor funding. But it is really the way that we provide opportunities for communities and assets around the world that wouldn't otherwise have access to carbon finance and traditional, you know, sources of foreign direct investments to be able to participate in this market, you know, through a relatively, I would say a relatively well-regulated trading and issuance regime, which is kind of all-encompassing phrase for the voluntary. And in a previous episode I alluded to earlier on, I think that there are obviously challenges around some of these, some of these projects, right? Challenges of verification, challenges about sort of this idea of equivalency between atmospheric and fossil carbon. I, I think I would urge our listeners to go listen to that. But as you say, you've got these these gold standard schemes that are that are essentially creating the instrument. So there isn't a there is a, a that level of oversight there. So I have two questions, and I think the first one might fall into my stupid question category. I presume from these offsets, you could therefore put a price on carbon. And how is that price? Is that price equivalent to what's going on in the compliance markets? Is there a premium? Is there a discount? Is it exactly the same? What What's the market signaling from these voluntary markets? Yeah, it's a good question. So the right price for a compliance market is essentially determined by the marginal abatement cost of companies that are covered by the regulation. So heavy industry, power generation, and in some markets, transport fuels. In voluntary markets, you have hundreds of different types of projects and therefore hundreds of different prices. So we do analysis on compliance markets really from a top-down perspective. And on voluntary markets, you really need to think about the opportunity cost of not doing that project um, as really the main driver to determine what the fair value is. So in the case of forestry, and we can talk about avoided deforestation projects, for example, you know, the right price for an avoided deforestation project is determined by the region and therefore the driver for deforestation and various socioeconomic, you know, and different kind of um, macro indicators. So in Brazil, we'll take a look at what a acre of land is worth to somebody who's thinking of deforesting it to plant soybeans or put in place cattle ranch. Uh, in Indonesia, it'll be driven largely by the palm oil price, uh, obviously things like inflation, energy prices. Whereas in a compliance market, while those things are important because they obviously impact the marginal costs of reducing emissions for compliance entities, 
they're not actually directly linked. So you can have dozens, if not hundreds of different prices for different types of voluntary carbon offsets. And the way that they relate to the compliance price is by and large that avoidance technologies trade at a discount to the global carbon benchmark, which we consider to be the EUA, and carbon removals technologies will trade at a premium to that. But we view that you know the fair value of carbon across the voluntary market is as low as a couple of dollars in the case of energy efficiency or some avoided deforestation projects to almost $1,000 in the case of some sort of direct air capture technologies with permanent storage. We think that by and large, the price of engineered carbon removals are going to go down over time. Uh, and we think that the price of, and the cost rather, of some of these kind of avoided technologies and these kind of energy efficiency type plays um, are going to go up because the low-hanging fruit will be, by definition, you know, monetized first. I know you've been at the forefront personally of, of the, the launch of these voluntary exchanges. Where are we at at the moment in terms of volume and where do you see that going? Is it already a, an inflow of participants? What's sort of the dynamic with regards to trading these voluntary uh, uh, credits? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I think the volume of the exchanges has been relatively low relative to the volume in the compliance markets. But I think you have to think of it in the context of, you know, where they are in their development. So if you wanted to start a carbon project, a voluntary carbon project, a greenfield project, it would take you a minimum of 18 to 24 months to come on stream. It would take you anywhere between nine and 12 months to even know, you know, whether that project is going to be registered and would result in any kind of, you know, volumetric risk, which needed to be hedged. So my view is that, you know, the launch of those products are extremely important uh, for the development of the market. It allows investors and project developers and, and honestly corporates uh, to have greater transparency and therefore more certainty over what the commodity that they're going to be investing into or procuring or intermediating is worth. And we think it's really a necessary first step to being able to lower the cost of you know, transacting, uh, lower the abatement costs for participants throughout the market. Uh, so we think it's going to increase probably exponentially, but roughly track the growth of the voluntary carbon market, which as you alluded, we think it has to grow much more than 10, 20 fold over the next 10 years, that kind yeah. of order of magnitude. But because it's there, as you say, suddenly financiers, developers, corporations can have a, a better understanding of pricing and a better understanding of the possibilities to hedge, you know, so it should itself spur its own growth. Spot on. I think it's a big deal. It will act as a benchmark for other voluntary carbon instruments. The reality is that having a single commodity price for the voluntary market is useful because then people can trade as a basis to that. I think that you're never going to have as much liquidity, frankly, as, as people think if you have dozens or hundreds of different types of exchange-traded voluntary carbon instruments because by definition, you know, it needs to be kind of a bit standardized in order to drive liquidity. Otherwise, you know, it's a market that kind of lends itself a little bit more to trading over the counter on a bespoke fashion. Yeah. And the trading of it as well is it's much more complex, I assume, than in the compliance markets. I mean, you're going to need biologists on staff and all types of different analysts to be able to actually understand if this project is, is what it says on the tin, you know, and, and make some of those future predictions around pricing. Yeah, a lot more goes into it. And I think that's it's down to the simple fact that private entities and companies and individuals are involved in creating the supply, right? Yeah. Where 
in the compliance market, the government issues it. There's no option for you to participate on the supply side. So it's, it is really a demand side response game. Whereas on the voluntary market, you have, <laughs> I mean, really you have dozens of different types of jobs and, 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 and things that you need to think about in the upstream, in the midstream, in the downstream, in terms of service providers. So we really are, you know, we are really in the, I would say the top of the second inning of, you know, creating an entirely new industry. Yeah. I mean, I know from our work in the agri space, you know, lots of intermediaries in, in, in the agri world are now thinking this is a service they have to be able to offer their exactly. farmers, right? Their customers. So I think there's a, there's a huge amount of interest. So we, and we could talk on that for, for so much longer. I've got a, a couple of more things I just really want to, to sort of tackle before we, sure. before we, 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 we wrap up. So the first thing is really just to say, talk about the price of carbon. I guess this is ultimately really talking with regards to the compliance markets. Where are we at right now? And is that, are we actually seeing it incentivizing decarbonization or are we at sort of the, the last gasp of cheap carbon? Well, <laughs> I think we are seeing it drive decarbonization, but I think it is, it is the volatility and the kind of the violent repricing that we've seen in a lot of these markets recently, I think is a result of a very long period of time of kind of under ambition, if you will, or kind of under investment in, in regulating the market and, and kind of getting on a path towards net zero. You know, so in Europe, we're trading between 50 and 60 euros. But the problem now, of course, is that at the same time that we're kind of seeing a shortage of carbon in the traded system, we're seeing a global gas shortage as well. So we're actually burning more coal and lignite this year in Europe than we did last year, which is not difficult because it was a pandemic. But we are still kind of chasing the low-hanging fruit in Europe. We're still trying to switch coal and lignite off in favor of natural gas. Now that the market is tightening, we're very, very correlated to natural gas prices. So in short, we're not seeing as much short-run abatement as we would have liked. And frankly, as we would have expected a few years ago, up at up at 55 euros a ton. And the real target here, and from my view, is you know industrial abatement. And the cost of industrial abatement goes down significantly slower than regulators would hope. And the reality is that you need to really overshoot the fair value of carbon from an industrial perspective by a pretty significant margin in order to get people to make these big long-term capital investment decisions because the carbon price has been extremely volatile. Now you have other places, uh, you know, you have other regions in the world, like, um, you know, in California, where we have had a decrease in emissions, but clearly not enough. Uh, that system covers almost 80% of the economy, but a large part of what it covers, which is transport fuels, has a marginal cost of well over $100 a ton. And obviously, you know, that's trading in the low 20s. So it's nowhere near the prices that are required in order to get people to switch off of, you know, gasoline and diesel in favor of you know, mass, even mass transit um, and electric vehicles. So I think that in virtually every major emission trading system, compliance trading system, we are below the fair value in the context of needing to reduce emissions by anywhere between 45 and 60% over the next eight and a half to nine years and getting as close to zero as possible kind of 20 years after that. Now, our view is that the price of reducing emissions from an operational standpoint where you can optimize parts of the economy, for example, switching coal in, in favor of natural gas or, you know, putting on higher efficiency, burning power stations, you know, that, that price is volatile. 
It's been as low as negative 20 euros and as high as 120 euros in Europe. It's now well over 100 euros once again because of the tightness in the natural gas market. Um, But as the power system decarbonizes and as the power market becomes an increasingly small part of kind of our pollution base around the world, the the attention is going to increasingly turn to industrial abatement. Our view is that the research that we're doing, and if you look at, for example, where the Canadians are setting, you know, the federal carbon price and where the United States is putting place, you know, things like the 45Q tax credit to incentivize carbon capture and storage, it starts at around 50 uh, and it goes to well over $100. Now, we think and hope that those costs will go down over time. Technology costs are typically deflationary and the carbon market being engineered for scarcity is obviously engineered to be inflationary. And we think that you know the way that the way that it would work is higher compliance carbon markets. The benchmark for carbon goes up. Investors just kind of start thinking about the future and pricing that in, and just kind of getting a bit more comfort around uh, you know the the you know the notion of having to pay higher carbon prices. It obviously creates a lot of room uh, for the voluntary carbon market and kind of those low hanging fruit. For example, mm. <laughs> avoided deforestation, energy efficiency tree planting, nature-based source of carbon removals, you know, will get a pretty big boost, if nothing else, just based off the comparable price of carbon, you know, in a kind of increasingly ambitious, increasingly environmentally ambitious world. Which brings us nicely to carbon as an asset class. Yeah. Just before we get there, in your, and this is, I guess, might be an unfair question. It seems to me that, and certainly, I guess this is from our perspective, what we're starting to see is that if you're in an energy, if you're in the energy and commodity and energy and commodities world, at least trading as a merchant or whatever it might be, a producer, it seems like you can't ignore the need to have a carbon team or trading debt. I'm actually going to restart to ask this. So that brings us nicely to carbon as an asset class. Before we get there, is it a fair question to ask? I mean, if you are in commodities, if you're in energy in particular as a producer, a trader, a con, you know. Can you afford to ignore carbon? And taking that a little bit further, should you already have started thinking about how you're going to trade, interact with these carbon markets? I think the unequivocally yes. You should be. You should have been thinking about this for a long time. You know, I think the repricing of the the EU ETS uh, was a bit of a wake up call for a lot of you know for a lot of companies and a lot of you know for a lot of individuals. We think that carbon is the most macro commodity in the world by definition. If you think about carbon kind of in, in oil terms, you know, we consume more than 130 million tons of carbon per day. Uh, and as I said before, over 80% of it is unpriced. And the carbon that is priced is mispriced. So if you think about that in the, in the context of trading natural gas, oil, or any hydrocarbon, and any industrial product that uses a hydrocarbon as a feedstock, um, then that's a pretty important second order impact that you need to understand. You need to have a view on it. Uh, increasingly in the institutional landscape, uh, if you're a company who you know is public or who has institutional ownership, you need to have a credible plan and a bit of, you know, you need to have a plan and you need to, I think, have a bit of competency around how you're going to reach um, either government imposed targets or you know, increasingly kind of involuntary, voluntary targets. You know, we think that the social license to operate for virtually every company and institution in the world will be largely determined by their ability to, you know, to reach 
environmental targets. And we think that carbon is that universal instrument that allows different activities, different regions, you know, different generations, frankly, to communicate with each other as a kind of common denominator. The truth is that it's going to take some time to train people, uh, repurpose. Uh, you know, we, you know, we're very heartened and, 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 and pleased to see people coming from the oil markets or from different commodity markets and different financial markets or even you know, parts of academia coming into the space now and, you know, wanting to contribute, particularly, you know, entrepreneurs starting uh, different technology firms and service providers. So this is the frenzy that we're seeing, I think, is kind of just the beginning. And from our perspective, this is going to bring increased efficiency uh, to the market. It's going to obviously reduce emissions, we think, at a faster clip. And I think for those that have kind of been around for a long time, this has been a long time coming. So, you know, we're happy to see the activity that, you know, the, the activity that, that we have over the last couple of, couple of years. Yeah. And then more from a selfish point of view, looking at this from portfolio theory, it also carbon as an asset class has a lot going for it, as we mentioned earlier, right? It, it not only is actually a positive for the world, could be a really important part of people's individual portfolios going forwards. Can you just finish up on that and just give us a comparing investing directly in some of these in the compliance markets in these inventories versus green bonds and all that side of things? When you invest into carbon, you know, you're investing kind of the real thing, if you want to think of think of it like that. It it is, you know, it is not a derivative of of anything. So if if carbon is what's going to be controlled and 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 priced and therefore passed on and have an impact on individuals and companies, that's what needs to be hedged. So virtually everybody in the world is is short carbon. The average person in the world has seven seven tons of carbon. That's just a simple average, obviously. You know, seven tons of carbon per person per year. Uh, if the price of carbon goes up fifty dollars, then you just do the math in terms of what that represents from an NPV perspective. It's something that needs to be hedged. And by and large, individuals are not actually coming into the market and hedging it. It's usually done by a pension fund or an insurance company or another institutional investor that has exposure, not just to the price of carbon, but you know, to the rate of price changes. So inflation, uh, you know, the inflationary impact that this could have. So carbon is an interest, it's a very interesting you know, product to own. It's something that doesn't degrade the cost of carry or the cost to store it and hold it. It's really just the opportunity cost of, of money. So it's just financing effectively. You know the supply is going down. So when people say the world can't afford $200 carbon price, I would say today that's right. But you know, in 2049, when you're you know, polluting, to make up a number, 90% less than you are today, then that price has a much smaller impact than it would today, obviously, because you know, you're, you're multiplying it by a much smaller base. So taking a 20, 30-year view what is going to be the price of carbon in, you know, in 30 years? What would people pay in 30 years to, to be able to pollute? Because that's what a carbon permit is. It, is, you know, it, it gives the holder the right to convert that ton to a real ton of pollution, which is obviously going to be increasingly expensive, at least in the medium term. And I think every portfolio that has carbon exposure needs to hedge that exposure. And you mentioned green bonds. I mean, green bonds are a, are a good diversification tool, but they don't actually give you directional carbon exposure. Things like renewable energy credits are obviously not denominated in carbon. They're denominated in megawatt hours. So you still have basis risk between a renewable energy credit and a carbon offset or a carbon permit. So in a world that is increasingly kind of constrained from a carbon budget perspective, hedging carbon requires you to 
trade or invest into carbon full stop. Now on the voluntary side, it's almost a, you know, it, it is a slightly different, you know, slightly different motivation, but I think it provides a lot greater opportunities for people to invest in the creation of carbon offsets, be they avoidance or removal instruments. They could invest into companies, into project developers, into exchanges, uh, companies that provide monitoring, reporting, verification tools, service providers. It's an entire industry uh, that's going to be created and frankly doesn't really exist today. And you know, from my view, the investment case for investing into carbon offsets um, versus carbon permits is slightly different. But by and large, we're seeing a big inflow of interest, obviously, from from investors who kind of just want to own carbon as an asset class. Uh, and obviously, we're seeing the rise of you know some ETFs and investment funds that are specializing uh, in carbon, uh, kind of as a standalone investment thesis and an and, and area of expertise. Uh, so we think the trend is going to continue. Yeah, I'll ask you offline which those ETFs are. So, um, <laughs> well, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I really appreciate the insight. I think you've given us a, a great level of clarity and understanding on the backdrop to these markets and, and actually how excitingly the future opportunity of them, not just for organizations tackling their own decarbonization plans and being able to put some foundations around the financing of those and so forth. But actually, you know, you've got schemes here that really are working. And I think, as we said earlier on, the issue of of, uh, of climate change is, is very stark in the news at the moment. And uh, it's heartening to see at least some of these things are starting to get the momentum that they've lacked for quite some time. Indeed. Well said. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.